0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined once again by Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein. Professor Rubenstein is doing a three-part series on Elisha Ben Abuya, otherwise known as Acher, on this podcast. The previous episode, episode 80, was the first part of this series. It was the stories of Elisha Ben Abuya in the Tosefta. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Elisha Ben Abuya in the Rushami tradition, So without further ado, Professor Rubenstein. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. So this is part two of the series on Alicia Benabuya with Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein. Uh,
1: Professor, take it away. Okay, thanks. So in in this part two, we're continuing the exploration of the figure of Alicia Benabuya in the rabbinic sources, especially here in the Yerushalmi. Um, last time, we, in part one, we looked at the first and the original source of Elisha ben life, which is a very cryptic passage in the Tosefta. It was had to do with mysticism and this form of early mysticism, Hei or Der Merkava mysticism, uh, and the Tosefta itself was very hard to understand, but it seemed even it, more that the the Tosefta wasn't understood by the rabbis in the times of the Roshami or the Bavli. They took it in slightly different directions. And in a very interesting way, they interpreted the Tosefta to generate events in the life of Elisha Ben Abuya. So this uh, this kind of thing is much more common in Midrash where verses in the Torah are elaborated on or the stories of the Torah are interpreted to generate more stories about the biblical characters it's very rare in rabbinic sources, but that seems to be what happened. Now, that gave part of the stories in the Yerushalmi and in the Bavli two different stories about Elisha and Vinabuya, and we're going to continue now with the rest of the story in the Yerushalmi, which I'm actually going to argue is a different story. They're really two different stories in the Yerushalmi, although sometimes they're conflated. So I'm going to get the text up here, and we'll follow along with this text. Um, Here we go. Okay. So this is the text in your Shami in English. And just to give us a brief overview, it really divides itself into five parts. You can see part A, this is going to be part B, C, D, and E. And uh, one thing we should appreciate is that this is. This story in the Yerushalmi is, I think, the most highly developed rabbinic story in all of the Yerushalmi. It's among the longest, and I think it's the most sophisticated from a literary point of view, from a narrative art point of view. Now, why that is, I'm not sure, other than the fact that the rabbis were apparently very interested in the story and worked over it and worked over it such that it became a real gem. Um, we don't really have statistics on the length of stories in either the Babli or the Urshami. No one's looked at that yet. It's a good topic if anybody wants to, to go into it. But again, by my judgment, I think this is, is probably the longest or certainly among the top few stories uh, in terms of length in the Urshami and really kind of the heights of rabbinic storytelling. So, um, So to get right into it. Part A is actually, what I call here Part A, is actually what we looked at last time. That is, this is the Yerushalmi interpretation of the Tosefta. You can see right at the top here, it says Acher gazed and cut the shoots, which is a citation from the Tosefta. And then you have what we dealt with last time, the Yerushalmi interpreting the Tosefta to generate this one story about Elisha, and a very, very negative story. In this story, he kills young students of Torah And he also advises persecutors how to force Jews to violate the Sabbath. So he's construed in a very, very negative way. And I emphasize this because we'll see in this story we look at now, the continuation of the Urshami, he's not portrayed in quite as negative a way. And I think this is one of the indications that we really have two separate stories, even though biographers who take these stories as biographically accurate traditions or more or less accurate traditions tend to conflate them. You know, they say they see them as two sources about the real life of Alicia Ben Abuya and acid driven leaf and other people who kind of take these sources more historically or biographically are forced to put these together in a very awkward way. But if we understand that these are not biographical traditions, these are rabbinic didactic fictions These are meant to teach lessons and you know, really, they might have a historical kernel, but they're not biography in our sense of the term. We can understand that different people told different stories about Alicia in different ways. And they don't necessarily go back to any historical persona. And anyway, what we saw about part A was that it's not historical, it's an interpretation of the Tosefta. So that, that should totally free us from this problem. But you can see the end of part A actually concludes right here with the last part of the Tosefta. Rabbi Akiba entered in peace and went out in peace about him. Scripture says, draw me after you. So the Yerushalmi makes very clear that this source is over. You know, it goes on to the next section of the Tosefta, the quotation about Rabbi Akiba. And that's all Tosefta. You know, it's not a continuous narrative before we get to part B. So I probably shouldn't have even called this part B, except that I was, dealing with this whole text. There should be, you know, up above, I should have called it one, and then I should have called this section two, but that's how I did it, so that's how I have it here. But the point is that we had one totally separate story, and now we're getting into a different story that the Urshami tells, far more interesting one about Elisha Ben Abuya. Now, the source of this story is unclear. The source of that first story was the, the source of this, The source of this story, we just don't know. So that is a bit of an enigma, you know, apparently they had other traditions about him and we just can't trace the, the those back past the Urshami. Um, so we'll look at this story and we'll just try to understand it on its own terms. That is, what is the story the Urshami is telling and what are they trying to accomplish by telling this story? Now, just to give you my thesis or just so we sort of have an overview before we work through the whole story. What I think is going on in this story is the Urshami is actually dealing with a theological problem that troubled the rabbis or that they were interested in it. And that theological problem or sort of series of theological questions, issues was is the merit that you earn from the study of Torah absolute or can it be lost? Can it be counteracted? That is, if you sin, do you lose your merits for study Torah? I mean, in general, we think of on Yom Kippur, you do good deeds, you do mitzvot, you get some merit, you do sins, you get some you know, punishments, and these kind of are balanced off. And in the end, you see if you're a good person or not a good person. But Torah for the rabbis had such incredible status. They sort of believed that the, they had trouble believing you could really lose the merit of Torah, or they were, they were interested in that question. Is it like sort of other mitzvot? Or could you really, if you sinned enough, would you lose that merit for studying Torah? Um, Or to put this in slightly different terms, could you have a person who was a great master of Torah, a great rabbi, and yet was a sinner? Because the Torah itself was supposed to give you merit, like it was supposed to protect you from sin. If you knew a great deal of Torah, you knew God's power, you knew the greatness of Torah, how could you possibly be a sinner? I mean that—that's the way they, you know, at least one stream of thought. On the other hand, you know, they might have known people who were great scholars of Torah and they threw it away. I mean, we ourselves probably know people like that. They lost faith, you know, they went astray in one way or another. In the Middle Ages, we know there were rabbis who were great scholars of Torah converted for various reasons. You know, so the rabbis are interested in this question. So what what they what they're doing throughout the story to give us a kind of bird's eye view from the beginning is constructing someone who is a great master of Torah but is also a sinner and then trying to figure out what happens to him. Does the sin counteract the Torah? Does the Torah outweigh the sin? What happens in the end? Does he get olam haba the world to come or does he lose his portion there? Yeah.
2: Okay, so when you're saying constructing, um, the source of uh, Alusha ben in general is in the Tosefta. So that you're sh- so so when you say constructing, you're not don't, you don't mean necessarily constructing the entire thing from scratch, but basically constructing the existing tosefta in a way that shapes their more immediate theological uh, conundrums that they're trying to uh, shed light on.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think here they are actually departing from the tosefta completely. There seems to be very very little connection. Between what we saw before and the way Alicia is um, portrayed in the Tosefta, the Rishami's interpretation of the Tosefta, and this story, the one thing that they do take is the fact that you had a rabbinic figure who did something terrible.
2: Uh-huh. Aha. Okay. And, it's, and, it's an easy segue. And, and, it's an easy yeah. Segue. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So
1: now they they say, okay, we have this idea. There's a there's a rabbinic figure for reasons we don't even probably understand. He Did something terrible. Now we're going to just take him to construct and I mean make up to to you know invent a character who is a great master of Torah. We'll call him Elisha Benabuya. They could have called him anything else too for you know for this purpose, but probably because they had the Tosefta, they had this notion that there was a guy at Elisha Benabuya and something terribly wrong happened. So we're going to use that name and this figure to construct and we'll see how they do it. Someone who knew a great deal of Torah and yet then became a sinner. So we had Torah and we had sin. And then the question becomes, what prevails in the end? Okay. Okay. So let's look at the story, and we will see how this happens. Um, so the story begins, Rabbi Meir was sitting and expounding in the House of Study in Tiberias, the Beit Midrash in Tiberia. His master, Elisha, passed by riding on a horse on the Sabbath. They came and said to Rabbi Meir, behold, your master is outside. He ceased his homily and went out to him. So we're, so right from the beginning, we, we are presented with the two characters who are going to be central to this story, Rabbi Meir and Elisha Ben Abuya. And again, this is part of the reason why it's a separate story. Rabbi Meir doesn't appear in the, in the Tosefta at all. Um, so and, and Rabbi Meir is portrayed as the student of Elisha. So Elisha is Rabbi Meir's master, his rabbi, but we're immediately surprised because Elisha is doing something not just that the rabbi shouldn't do, but no Jew should do, right? He's riding his horse on the Sabbath. Now riding a horse is prohibited on the Sabbath. It's not the worst kind of Sabbath infraction if you think of like technically by the laws of Shabbat, it's not an abdu'lachah, but we do know that even from other non-rabbinic sources, Riding a horse on the Sabbath was sort of the way it had, it, it had much greater symbolism. It's the way you came out and said, I'm kind of renouncing Judaism. So it, it, it's very symbolic in this sense. Obviously, Re- Alicia is sinning, and yet he's called Rabbi Mayer's master. So the story already sets us up with kind of this conundrum. What is going on? How is Alicia the sinner from the get go, um, Rabbi Mayer's master? And how did this all happen? And there's actually a nice wordplay. And again, I want to, to as we go through these stories, pay attention to the literary aspects. You know, this is something that really interests me. And again, this is part of the reason we know these stories are kind of more fictional compositions. It's because of that use of wordplay and reversals, the kind of narrative techniques we tend to associate with great fictional writing. It's very hard, much harder to do when you're writing history and biography, but so pay attention to that. So you can see I, it's it says, his master, Alicia passed by riding on his horse, avar. Now, the word avar, over, of course, does mean to pass by. What else does the word avar mean? Avera, sin. Sin. So this is double entendre. It could mean his master, Alicia sinned, riding a horse on Shabbat. And so the, the story is already telling us it's a sinner if we didn't even know that. And that just makes the, the, the conundrum kind of greater. So what and then then Rabbi Meir ceases his homily he ceases his Russia and he goes out to 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 meet him. So we want to know what's going on and why Rabbi Meir is apparently wanting to engage with Alicia. You know, if Alicia's sitting like this he could have abandoned him. I mean he could have said okay, you know, this is my rabbi, went astray, but he doesn't say that. So what happens? Now what we're going to get and this is part of the literary artistry as you can see, the story has a, a very set tripartite structure. Each of these five parts, I mean, part A from the Tosefta's interpretation, and then B, C, D, and E, are divided into three parts. One, you can see I've uh, illustrated them, one, two, and and then three. And we'll get to C also has one, two, and three. Okay, so we have a very, very set structure. And what happens in this section is that Alicia is going to ask Rabbi Meir what he was expounding. That's how it starts. He, Alicia said to him, what were you expounding today? And then in part two, he says, what were you expounding again? And part three, what else were you expounding? So it it, it includes three drashot of Rabbi Mayer, followed by some conversation about them, all of which is significant. So Alicia asked Rabbi Mayer, oh, here, you were in the Beit Midrash. I was outside. What were you expounding? What were you talking about? In the Beit Midrash, and Rami Meir quotes him this verse: "The Lord blessed the de- latter days of Job's life more than the beginning." Okay, that's what that happened to be his text. And he said to him, Alicia says to him, "How did you begin it?" And he said to him, "The Lord gave Job twice what he had before; that he doubled his money." Okay, so this book, this quote from the book of Eo, from the book of Job. At the end, the verse said, God blessed Job more in the end of his life than his beginning. And the Lord said, and and another verse there says he gave Job twice what he had before. And Elisha says he doubled his money. Now, this is not the greatest drusha, if you think about it, because Rabbi Meir is basically just explaining exactly what the verse says. He's not really adding anything, there's no novel insight. What does it mean the Lord gave twice what he had before? That he doubled his money? You know, okay, that's what the verse means. So, what, what's going on here is the, the story is trying to make very clear that Elisha Ben Abuya is still Rabbi Mayer's superior. So we'll see that because Elisha says to him, Alas for things lost and not found. This is some kind of lament, right? Akiba, your master, did not expound it like that. Rather, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job's life more than the beginning, on account of the mitzvot and good deeds that he had done from the beginning. So this is a much better drusha because it it's, it, it takes the verse to in a new way. It's a novel insight. What he's actually drushing is the last word more than the beginning, me reishi to. The Mem there, the shot of it is more than the beginning. That's how we translate it. But the preparation Mem can mean different things, and Elisha is interpreting from the beginning or on account of the beginning. So what does it mean the Lord blessed the latter days of Job's life, me It means he blessed them from the beginning in the sense of on account of the mitzvot and the good deeds that he'd done from the beginning. So this Elisha Ben-Abuya has already established himself as superior to Mayer. He knows Akiba's tradition. He, he attributes this to Akiba, but he knows this tradition and Rabbi Meir doesn't. And it's a much better Russia. So what we have initially is, again, kind of this more of an enigma or more question, surprise at the beginning. Here's Rabbi Meir, the head of the Beit Midrash in Tveria It looks like Elisha Benabuya, the sinner, and yet Alicia knows more Torah, and he knows Akiba's Torah, which Mayer doesn't know. Also, I want us to think about this Drusha. I don't think it's accidental that they quote this verse about the latter days and the beginning and an encounter the mitzvot voted, good deeds that he'd done from the beginning. I think all of the Drasha we're going to see are really self-referential. That is, they're not random teachings that happen, you know, that are just quoted for the sake of being quoted. But these all are going to also apply to the story of Alicia Ben Abuya and to the question the rabbis are trying to figure out. So here the question is: Let's say you do become a sinner and you do lose credit, let's say, for some of your mitzvot. Still, do the ones you did at the beginning of the life? Do they? The, does the merit for those still still accrue to you? Would those still be a way to get to Olam Haba? You know, Job lost, Eov lost his merits, or he lost the things he had. He didn't really lose his merits, you know, because of this funny story in the book of Eov with Satan and so on. That's not exactly the same as Elisha, of course, but this story is kind of asking that question uh, can, can you lose the merit of Torah that you got in the beginning of your life if you go astray, or, or do you still get it? Okay, so that's Russia number one. So now Elisha says to Rebbe Mayer, what else were you expounding? And he said to him, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Now this verse from the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, you notice it also ends than its beginning. It ends with the same word as the previous verse from Job. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And he said to him, and how do you begin it? You know, how did you start your... Russia, and now Rabbi Meir gives a slightly better Drusha than he did before. He gives us three parables. Again, you can see this tripartite structure, A, B, and C, three subunits. So Rabbi Meir said, he said to him, to Elisha, I was doing my Drusha, I was explaining this, this verse by comparing it to a man who had children in his youth who died and his old age who lived. Behold, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. What is this verse talking about? It's talking about this kind of man. Or comparing it to a man who did business in his youth and lost money and is in his old age and earned money. Behold, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. There's another way to understand this verse or what this verse is talking about. By comparing it to a man who learned Torah in his youth and forgot it and in his old age and fulfilled it. Behold, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. So I think this is, you know, a, a slightly better drusha. Rabbi Mayer is not just repeating the verse, he's actually illustrating it. But nevertheless, these are rather routine interpretations of the verse. I mean, it's basically what the verse says. And it's not, it's not so insightful. I mean, obviously these things are, are better than its beginning. The end is better than its beginning. If we look at this third one, again, I think this is where we see the self-referential self-referentiality a bit too. A man who learned Torah in his youth and forgot it in his old age and fulfilled it. Again, it doesn't apply directly to Elisha, because what we're going to see is Elisha, it's not that he forgot his Torah, as we can see, he actually knows his Torah, but it's someone who basically threw out his Torah, you know, before his old age, someone who rejected his Torah. And so it's kind of asking again about how does that play out? You know, how does this situation play out in Alicia? Is the end of the thing better than its beginning? Will he still get to Alamaba or you know, has he lost it? Okay, but it, so it's a very subtle illusion. But again, I think it's cluing us in as to that's one of the questions here. In any case, Alicia now responds to Mayer as he did before with the same lament. Alas for things lost and not found. Akiba, your master, did not expound it like that. Rather, the end of a thing is better than its beginning when it is good from the beginning. Okay, so here's again a better drusha because it's not just giving you the simple explanation. It's not just repeating what the verse says. It's again playing on this that mem. What does it mean? The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Me Rashito, it means from its beginning, when it's good from the beginning. The end of a thing is better only if it's good from its beginning. And now Elisha actually, very surprisingly, makes it explicitly referring to him. Here's the self-referentiality being explicit. And this matter happened to me. Abuya, my father, was one of the notables of Jerusalem, one of the elites, one of the rich of Jerusalem. On the day he was to circumcise me, he invited all the notables of Jerusalem and seated them in one house, or it could be one room. The word va'it refers to house or room. He invited Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua and seated them in a separate house, or maybe we should say in a separate room or a separate place in the house. When they were eating and drinking and singing and clapping and dancing, that is, Elisha and his friends, Rabbi Eliezer said to Rabbi Yeshua, As long as they are busying themselves with their own business, let us busy ourselves with ours. They sat and busied themselves with words of Torah, from the Torah to the prophets and the prophets to the writings. And fire came down from heavens and encircled them. So they were engaging in Torah with such passion and such energy that actually fire came down from from heaven. And Abuya said to them, my masters, have you come to burn down my house upon me? They said to him, God forbid, but we were sitting and turning, chosrin, and I want us to pay attention to this word, because the word chosrin, choser, is going to appear over and over again. It's actually a key word to this uh, composition, to the whole story. Um, So we were sitting and turning words of Torah, from the Torah to the prophets, from the prophets to the writings. And the words rejoiced as when they were given at Sinai, and fire enveloped them as the fire enveloped them at Sinai. At Sinai, they were given primarily in fire, and the mountain was ablaze with flames to the very skies. So here, too, the fire came out. And Abuya, my father, said to them, my masters, if that is the power of Torah, if this son of mine prospers, Nikayem, if he survives, I will dedicate him to Torah. And now the narrator, or, or Alicia continues, since his intention was not for the sake of Torah, for not for the sake of Heaven, since my mass, My father Abuya's intention was not for the sake of Heaven, therefore it did not prosper, lo nitkaimuf for that man, meaning for me. In other words, Abuya said, I see this power of Torah, you guys were engaging in Torah and this fire just exploded there, look how powerful Torah is. So I'm going to dedicate my son to Torah, but he wasn't dedicating him to the, for the right reasons. He was dedicating him to Torah just because he he saw this kind of fire, you know, these pyrotechnics. It wasn't out of real piety and a sense of worship of God and commitment to Torah for its own sake. And because of that, it did not prosper for that man. That is for me, Elisha Benabuya, I was kind of ruined from the start, you know. And that's what that comes back to the illustration of the verse. The end of a thing is better than its beginning when it's good from the beginning. But he, Elisha, it wasn't good from the beginning. It was low le, shem, we would say. Right? Um, so, Elisha here is giving a little account of what went wrong. His father was this, we would say, a kind of assimilated Jew. I mean, not totally assimilated, but not not the most pious Jew. He's, he's hanging out with these notables. They're rejoicing in some ways. They have the rabbis in a separate section. It looks like he's got these rabbis there just kind of to honor him, or to honor his son for some reason, but not because he's really committed to them. He sees their power, and that's when he makes his dedication of his son to Torah. But in a kind of midah neged midah, or measure for measure way, uh, um, he, he dedicated him, right? He, he wanted him to succeed, but lo, Kayem he didn't really succeed. He didn't prosper because it's from the wrong reason, as the verse says. Now, what, what's very important here is the rabbis are beginning to construct how the figure of a sinning sage could develop. How could it be, as we said from the beginning, that someone who knows a great deal of Torah would go astray? Or would turn out bad, or would become a sinner, because Torah should protect him, and he should know the power of Torah. So what this explanation is saying is, is that it was kind of fated that way. It's like if we have a a genetic flaw in our body, so that we're going to develop, you know, some disease, whatever it is. There's nothing we can do about it. It's sort of built into us from our genetic makeup from the beginning. And Alicia Benabuya, the storytellers are saying Alicia had that built-in flaw because his father's intention was wrong from the beginning. And therefore he turned out to be a sinner. So we can understand now, we can begin to understand how you could get a sage who was a sinner. It's because right from the right from the get-go, he was doomed. He was uh he was fated, you know, not to come out to be a righteous person. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So they're trying to present it in the most realistic way possible from their perspective.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say realistic, but in a plausible well, way, or what we might say with verisimilitude, a way that kind of makes sense, right? For well, their, a way you... that would
2: sit well with the people. Huh? A way that would sit well with the people.
1: Well, it would sit well to the other rabbis. It would say it make sense to the, the rabbis reading. themselves. They would say, look, and uh, think of yourself. If you think of a great Talmud Chacham, you know, one of these the great rabbis today, how how would he go? How would he become a sinner? It, it sort of doesn't make sense. So what they're saying is, no, this is a way that does make sense and makes sense because from the beginning he was he was doomed to go astray because the intention of his father was lo lishem and so he turned out lo lishem Now again, you can say that 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 idea doesn't make sense to me, or I don't like it, or. You know, we shouldn't be punished for the sins of our father. But the storyteller apparently believed that was plausible. Mm-hmm. So in his world, this was a way of making sense of it. As we'll see, he works harder to make more sense of it. bull. He wasn't totally satisfied with this, but this was his initial salvo to explain how sin and Torah would coexist. He became a great master of Torah because Abuya dedicated him to Torah. But he was going to become a master who sinned because his attention was bad. It wasn't for the sake of Torah. It was just for the sake of this power he saw. Okay, so again we see Elisha Ben Abuya, you know, is superior really to a, to Rebbe Meir. First of all, he knows Akiva's interpretation, it's a better drasha. It plays on the, it's not simply the simple explanation of the verse illustrated in parables. And actually it's got a real life application. So whereas Rebbe Meir gives us. Hypothetical parables illustrating it. Alicia Benabuya gives you a real life example. You know, he lived it in this way, he exemplified the verse. Okay, so now we get to the third part of this section. So he said to him, Alicia says to him, What else were you expounding? He said to him, Gold and glass cannot match its value. Okay, so now we have a different verse, not, not one that deals with the beginning, but a different book from the Different verse from the book of Eov, of Job, gold or glass cannot match its value. now in context, this is a section of chapter twenty eight here that deals with wisdom. Wisdom or hokma was this kind of idea in the ancient Near East. It's not just in Judaism of a kind of personified you know wisdom that that different uh, sages kind of could access or it almost had a kind of angelic force to itself. It was considered kind of like an angel. But in any case, the rabbis associated this Chokmah with Torah. So in context, they understood this verse to be talking about Torah. Gold or glass cannot match its value, the value of wisdom or the value of Torah. So Rabbi Meir is expanding this verse. He said to him, and how did you begin it? Alicia asks him, he said, the words of Torah are as difficult to acquire as vessels of gold, and as easy to lose as vessels of glass, all right? So that's why it's kind of an interesting metaphor or image. Why is gold or glass mentioned in this verse compared to Torah? It's because words of Torah are difficult to acquire like gold. They're easy to lose as glass. Glass shatters very easily as we know. So that's what the image is. But just as vessels of gold and vessels of glass are broken, one can return and make them vessels as they were, okay. one can return. The word from word for return is lachzor. Again, we saw that word above. We're going to see it again. So a sage who forgets his Torah can return lachzor and learn it at the beginning. Okay. So this is actually a very nice Drusha. Rabbi Meir has raised his game by the third Drusha here. He's explained why gold and glass is, is compared uh, to the value of Torah, but why they're not equal to Torah, but why they're mentioned in the same verse, it's because Torah is hard to acquire, it's easy to lose, but you know, if gold or glass breaks, you can, you can put it together again. Um, you could heat up the glass, you could melt the gold and, and restore it as it was, and so too a sage who forgets his Torah can learn it as the beginner. Now at this point, we have a variation of what we saw before. This time, Alicia does not say, as he said in both parts one and two, um, "Alas for the things that are lost and not found." Right, saying how. Said it again in the first one, Akiva, your master did not expound it like that. In the first cases, he showed he was a better rabbi than Mayer, but here Mayer has raised his game. But now, Alicia says something different. He says to him. Enough, mayor, the Sabbath limit is up to this point. In other words, we've already walked a certain distance. You're only allowed to travel a certain distance outside of your place of residence on the Sabbath. 2000 amot is known as the tchub Shabbat, not measured from exactly where you are, but measured from the limits of the city. But apparently they walked 2000 cubits already out of Tiberias. Um, Alicia riding on the horse, and Rabbi Mayer following be, behind him. And Mayer says to him, "How did you know this? You know, I mean, they didn't have ways or, you know, Fitbits there. They didn't know how far they traveled." So Alicia says to him, "From the steps of my horse, which I've been counting, and he's walked two thousand cubits, which again should tell us how great Alicia ben Abuya is, because while he's having this discussion of Torah with Rabbi Meir, He has simultaneously been monitoring the steps of his horse and keeping count on them. And he knows that they've gone this far, which again shows you just how observant he is, how great a sage he is. I mean, he's been aware of this all the time. Had he been someone who wanted to observe this law, he could have observed this law, as we're seeing. He doesn't want to do it. But you can see it's to portray him again as as such a great sage which is what Rabbi Meir says. He said to him, you have all this wisdom, yet you will not repent. Will you not chazar? So here's this play on chazar, right? If you forget your Torah, you can return and get it. And we saw it up above that they were turning, chosreen, the words of Torah. And of course, what else does the word chazer mean as in chazer v'tshuva? It means repent. So we've got this word play going through this whole section. And now Rabbi Meir makes it explicit, right? Elisha he, he, tells Mayer to turn back so he doesn't violate Shabbat. And Mayer says to him, well, why don't you turn back? Why don't you repent? Why, why, why are you continuing as a sinner? And Elisha now says, I cannot. And he explains. He said to him, why? He said to him, once I was passing by the Holy of Holies, riding my horse on Yom Kippur that fell on Shabbat. So this is the holiest time, Yom Kippur, not just Yom Kippur, but Yom Kippur and Shabbat together. And it's the holiest place. It's by the Kodesh HaKodeshim. And he was sinning. He was riding his horse, which, of course, you're not supposed to do. I heard a heavenly voice come out of the Holy of Holies and say, return, rebellious children, banim a call to repentance, Chuva except Elisha Ben-Abuya for he knew my power and rebelled against me.
0: So, so this- this is, this is the point of view that we're, you talked about earlier when we started this, that um, once you do a certain amount of sins, you can't come back. That's it, it's over.
1: Well, see, that's that's the point here that I think this is what, that's exactly the question that the, the story is trying to preclude right here. Your question is excellent. In other words, the the simple solution for a sinning sage, for a rabbi who sins, is to do tshuva, to choser That's exactly what Rabbi Meir says. And normally we say, you can always do tshuva. You can do tshuva on Yom Kippur. You can do tshuva any day of the year. You can do tshuva by, just before you die. You know, the gates of tshuva are always open. So yeah, let's say Elisha bin Abuya violated Shabbat. And let's say he lost his faith, so he should do tshuva. And the Torah, he knows, should even give him an impetus to do tshuva. So what's happening in this section is it's precluding that simple solution. Elisha ben Abuya is, a, is, a, is an exception. He can't do tshuva because he heard this voice. And the voice said, you're not allowed to do tshuva. So for Elisha ben Abuya, there's no solution. And the Torah that he learned in his youth, and the sins that he's done are going to coexist until he dies. Or they're just going to continue in that mode until he dies, because he can't do tshuva. Now, is it fair that he can't do tshuva? Well, apparently, again, by the logic of, this, of the story, it is. Normally, you can always do tshuva. But if you ride your horse, dafka, on Yom Kippur, Tafka, in the Holy of Holies, right next to the Holy of Holies, that is such a rebellion, right? This is what the verse says. You know, you knew my power, you were a great rabbi, and you rebelled against me, so I'm rejecting you. So tshuva is not an option. So the rabbis have now successfully, or the storyteller has successfully constructed this figure, a great master of Torah, but a sinner. And we can't solve it by doing tshuva, so we're going to, you know, eventually see what happens when he dies. Does he get a lama Bad? Does he not? Does he get the merit for the Torah? You know what happens.
2: Yeah, right. So, so, uh-huh. so by constructing, by, by by inserting this whole point of he can't do tshuva, it sets the stage for the ultimate question being posed
1: now. Exactly. Is the is the merit of the Torah absolute? So that even though you've you've accrued all these sins, you still get that merit, or is it is it? know can it be lost like the verse kind of says you know words of torah can be lost or you know things can be lost can it can it be can it be lost but you can't solve the the problem by doing tshuva because tshuva is not an option okay all right good everyone good so so just one one other point before we go on you can see how beautifully this section of the story is constructed because how did it start it started with Rebbe Mayer was in the house of study expounding, and Elisha passed by riding his horse on the Sabbath. And how does it end? It ends with a flashback to when Elisha was was riding his horse on the Sabbath and Yom Kippur. So, you know, those kind of two mo- moments of horse riding converge, right? The present riding the horse and the past riding the horse that was one factor that led to the whole problem, and, um, uh, and and you can see there's a very artful construction of time. Again, the present moment, you know, where we're in the story, the time of the story is Alicia and Abuya traveling, you know, Alicia on his horse, Rabbi Meir walking together and having these discussions. But meanwhile, we have two very interesting flashbacks. There's one to Abuya, and the birth of Alicia, and then another flashback to Alicia when he when he heard the ver- the voice from the holy of holies precluding repentance. So the, uh, the storyteller, you know, is, is, is really using flashbacks and, in, in a very very complex narrative way. He could have told the story in a different order. He could have started with the booyah scene one and the birth of Alicia. And then he could have had Alicia growing up and learning Torah, and then he could have had him, you know, going astray and rejecting in this scene. And then he could have had it to Mayor, but he doesn't do it. Right? He he does it in a in a different way. And again, this is just part of the beautiful narrative art of the Torah, of the of the story. So, just one so other- I, I have a question. So when yeah.
0: he says, "For he knew my power and rebelled against me," the power is corresponding
1: to the story about his father, correct? I think the power here is just the power of Torah in general. That is, the greater the rabbi, the more Torah he knows. He knows the greatness of Torah, the greatness of God. So you knew my power. You were such a great rabbi, and yet you rebelled against me. So, you know, you're not like someone who was a tinok shanishba. you know, a Jew who never learned anything, who didn't know much about Torah. You know, those people go astray or rebel. We might understand it. But you know, of all the people in the world, you should—you knew my power. So this is—you rejected me. You rebelled against me. I'm going to reject you. It's kind of again the mudha and Got it. And, and notice also this—I mean, there's a, the imagery is is very important. He, 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 he um you know, he he tells Rebbe Mayer, turn back. The Sabbath limit is here, and. Elisha Ben is going to go forward on his horse beyond the Sabbath boundary. So again, it's symbolic of him leaving the community of Torah, you know, leaving the mitzvot. He's taking himself outside there, riding outside, violating Shabbat. Not just by riding the horse, but now by leaving Chum Shabbat. And there's the the separation, the barrier. I mean, again, it's it's invisible, but you know, but he's a, concerned a, he's a, concerned about
0: his Talmud and yes. and the fact that he is he doesn't want him to sin in a way because he's like, there's still hope for you. I, I already went too far. He's already doubling down. he's writing on Shabbat again yeah and and his student, you know, he's like, listen, you, you still have hope. I, I already went too far,
1: yeah, I mean that's right. that's why I'm saying he's almost like saying I, there's nothing I can do that's what, you know even if I wanted to do tshuva, maybe I right. do want to do chuva, but I can't. Exactly. You because know, I went too far, but you know, I, I am concerned about you. Exactly. That's a nice way to put it. And you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't violate Shabbat. This is, by the way, why I think this is an independent story. Because if we go back to the first section, Alicia ben Abuya killing young students of Torah and sending them away from Torah and telling the Romans or persecutors how to get Jews to violate Shabbat, that just doesn't fit with Alicia here, who's who's telling Mayor, you know. You don't violate Shabbat, you know. I'm rebelling against God, but I'm not harming anybody, you know.
0: I think it's also symbolic, possibly, that the riding of the horse on Shabbat—you're going too far—represents going too far. Like he's gone too far with his ideas and yeah. his actions.
1: Yeah, and we don't know exactly what they were, but whatever they were, he's now beyond the pale. You know, that's a exactly. that symbolic boundary. Okay, so that's that's the second section. Now, C. Uh, you know, the the third section, or I think we could say the second section of this second story, now actually asks a question, why did all this happen to him? And we're going to get, again, three answers, one, two, three. Now, I actually think this section might have been yet another tradition about Alicia Benabuya, and it's not really part of the story we just saw, because... We already got an explanation of why this happened to him. Why did this happen to him? It happened to him because of his father Abuya's bad intention. That was not Lashem Shemaim. And then because of this episode by the Holy of Holies. So in a way, we're we might be getting some other traditions here. But I think what's going on is the, the storyteller is, Really bothered by this question of how could a master of Torah go astray and sin, so he's working super hard to construct that figure to explain it, and he's got to provide many explanations. You know, a lot of things went wrong mm. to get to this position. So let's look at these explanations. So, so why did all this happen to him? Once he was sitting and learning in the plane of Genesaret. Genesaret is what? The okay, genesaret is the kineret. You know, the kineret is. <laughs> oh. Okay, the, the, the g in, uh, in the kuf sometimes switch. Okay, so in, in Christian literature and Greek literature, it's called the genesaret, but it appears in rabbinic literature too. Okay, so once he was in the plain of the kineret, he was up there in the Galilee, and he saw a man ascend to the top of a palm and take the mother bird together with her young and descend safely from there. Okay, and uh, what's wrong with this? We know there's a mitzvah. Actually, it's going to be quoted right here. The next day he saw a man ascend to the top of the palm and take the young after shooing away the mother. He descended from there, and a snake bit him, and he died. He said, that is, Elisha said, it is written, do not take the mother together with her young. Let the mother go and take only the young in order that you may live well and have a long life. Okay, you're not supposed to take a mother with her eggs or with her chicks. So you're supposed to shoo the mother away, and that's exactly what this person did who died, whereas the first one who took the mother and her young, nothing bad happened to him. Okay? And what's what are you promised if you actually, you know, it's usually seen as a kind of ethical sensitivity to the mother bird, though sometimes they don't like us to see this, but in any case, you know, what are you promised for observing this mitzvah in order that you may live well and have a long life, but this man died. So he says, where's the welfare of this man? Where's the long life of this man? So in other words, Alicia Ben-Abuya had a problem with what we call theodicy, the justice of God or the suffering of the righteous. Here is a case where the wicked prospered, the man who took the mother with the young and the righteous man suffered, the one who shooed the mother away, and the Torah promised him a long life, and he didn't get a long life, so he lost faith. And of course, this is a a very serious problem. Who doesn't have a, an issue with theodicy, with the justice of God? It's something with we struggle over and over again. You know, especially after the Holocaust, but really all of Jewish history. So, this is a plausible explanation for why you could lose faith. You know, again, this is why you could understand a Torah scholar going astray and becoming a sinner. I think the storyteller is working very hard to try to make that plausible. Now, the storyteller throws in, he did not know that Rabbi Yaakov had previously expounded it in order that you may live well. When the verse says, don't take the mother bird in order that you may live well, it means in the world to come that is all good and have a long life in the future that is all long. Okay, so Elisha Ben Abuyah, it was unfortunate, didn't know the real meaning of this verse. When the verse promises you a long life, it means an olam haba, in the next world. Um, that's where if you do this mitzvah, you'll get your reward. So the storyteller saying Elisha Ben Abuyah, tragically didn't know this explanation, so he thought the Torah was false. He thought the Torah had promised this man a long life, and then he ended up dying. And had he had known this, maybe he would have gone astray. Again, I think this might—this is a little bit in tension with the section we saw before that portrays Alicia Benabuya, such a great sage. He even knows Akiba's explanations that Mayer didn't know, and here he doesn't seem to know a kind of basic explanation for this verse. But okay, you know, for the storyteller's point of view, for whatever reason, he took the verse literally, and then he then he lost his faith because he saw. The righteous were, were, were suffering, dying, and the, the wicked were prospering. So that's one way he might have gone astray. Or, you know, one way, one reason he did go astray, you know, it makes it a plausible reason. And then, secondly, some say it happened to him because he saw the tongue of Rebbe Yehuda the baker dripping with blood, dripping blood in the mouth of a dog. In other words, this was a great rabbi. And he had been martyred, usually this is interpreted during the um, Bar Kokhba rebellion and the rabbis, you know, the Asara Harugei Amalfut, that we say on Yom Kippur, the 10 martyrs, I don't know if it really is, but, you know, some martyr, this great rabbi who was killed and then his body was humiliatingly, you know, eaten by a dog, his body was thrown to the dogs, he said, this is Torah and this is its reward? This is the tongue that used to bring forth fitting words of Torah. This is the tongue that labored in Torah all of its days. It seems that there is no giving of reward and no resurrection of the dead. So because of this incident, again, he lost faith. This is, again, this, the righteous suffering. And he couldn't understand how a great rabbi should have this faith. I mean, where is the reward for Torah? And maybe seeing his his, his head or his tongue in the mouth of a dog suggested to him, there was no resurrection for the dead. I mean, the the connection there is not totally clear, but in any case, he, he lost faith because of this event. Um, by the way, again, I think this could be self-referential. That is, I think this is the Torah and this is its reward. This question that Elisha ben Abouya asks is the question the storytellers are asking of Elisha ben Abouya himself. You know, or any great sage. Once you learn Torah, are you guaranteed a reward? Or if you sin, can you lose that reward? But okay, here it's in you know, Alicia Benamuya's mouth, supposedly because of this incident he saw. And then we have another explanation. And some say that when his mother was pregnant with him, she would pass by houses of idol worship and smell that stuff. That is, she smelled the incense, the sacrifices that were Offered to idols, and the aroma seeped into his body like the venom of a snake. Okay, again, we had a snake, uh, again, part of the thematic unity, right? Here was a snake who bit him, uh, and he died. Snake bit him, and he died. Snake always the symbol of evil or the symbol of, of sin. So, in this case, what happened? His mother inhaled idolatrous sacrifices when he was in utero. And it kind of, again, caused a genetic problem for him, a kind of uh, genetic mutation, such that he was programmed to go astray. He was programmed to go to lose his faith or lose Torah and uh, become an idolater or, or reject God. So we have these three explanations. Now, again, the fact that his mother was pregnant with him, I don't know, seems to contradict or stand in tension with the one about uh, his father. Abuya is the reason to blame. But at least, again, it gives you an explanation that takes the, the blame or makes it a plausible in the rabbis or the storytellers' point of view way that you could get a great Torah scholar who went astray or who became a sinner. Because from the beginning, he was he had this, you know, this idolatrous substance inside of him because his mother had uh, has gotten too close and smelled it. So I think the storyteller is working very hard to explain how we could get a great sage, a great scholar of Torah, and yet someone who becomes a sinner. You know, the, these explanations, you could harmonize them with what we saw with the booyah. You could say, yeah, his father had the bad intention, Lola shem shamayim, so we knew he was going to come out bad. We knew he was going to become a sinner. And then this is how he became a sinner. This was what precipitated it. It was how what happened to Elisha himself. He saw this event. He lost his faith. He saw the martyrdom. He lost his faith. His mother was also, you know, had this problem. And all these things kind of together made him reject Torah. And then you had that voice by the Holy of Holies. So there we have it. Right? The master of Torah, the sinning sage. Can't repent, rebelled against God, went astray because of this terrible theological issue we all we all struggle with because of the sins of his father and mother. And now the question is, what happens? Torah Does Torah prevail? Does he get the merit of Torah? Or does he lose it because of his sin? Okay, so we'll go on to section D. Just one other point. Notice again, there's a deep interest in Um, in mothers and young, or parents and children, right? The mother bird and the young chicks, uh, Alicia Buya's mother, and being pregnant with him, and his father, and his circumcision, right? These parents and children, these issues keep coming up again. These themes, it's just a very tightly held story, right? The same motifs and themes, and there's a great amount of thematic unity in this narrative.
0: Also the, uh, maybe it's not connected, but the theodicy brought up in this section corresponds potentially to Eov, which is, which is the book on theodicy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there could be a, a sort of allusion to that in those books, in the verses quoted from Job, from the book of Eov. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's see what happens. Okay, so section D now... Takes place years later, Elisha became sick. They came and said to Rabbi Meir, Behold, your master is sick. He went to desiring to visit him and found him sick. And he said to him, Will you not repent? Okay, so this section again starts similar to section B. Remember, Rabbi Meir was sitting in his founding in the house of study in Tiberias. His master Elisha passed by. They came, in this section, they came and said to Rabbi Meir, Behold, your master is outside. Okay so now in section D behold your master they came and said to Rabbi Meir behold your master is sick so again you can see this is these repetitions tell you it's a very cohesive story it's all part of the same story so here we are later in in Alicia's life he's sick they tell Rabbi Meir he goes to visit him and he still wants Alicia to repent just like he asked him to at the end of section B maybe now he's sick it's the end of his days and now elisha says he said to him if one repents is it accepted you know can, Alicia's elisha's asking rabbi Meir, can i repent at this point you know so close to death or maybe in my state you know having been a sinner it's not totally clear but He's asking Rabbi Meir, it's a little bit of a reversal of what we said before when Alicia knew all the answers and he knew the better drush out. But now years later, Rabbi Meir has become a great rabbi and Alicia has kind of been weakened. So we have a little bit of a reversal of, of the positions. Now Elisha asked Rabbi Meir the question. I mean, Rabbi Meir asked him, will you repent? But Alicia says, "It's it accepted? And Rabbi Meir says, basically, yes. He said, is it not written, you return man to dust? You decreed return you mortals. He quotes him a verse from Tehillim, Psalm 93 until life is crushed, it is accepted. So, in other words, this verse that says you return man to dust and then tells humans to do tshuva, you said return you mortals, means you can do tshuva until man returns to dust, you know, until you're dead. You can always do tshuva.
2: Yeah. So, by the response of mayor it seems to be that his original question was regarding his state not his sins because he's answering if it's not until you die meaning it's not too late even in your old age
1: yeah Rabbi Mayer seems to believe no matter what your sins are you can do tshuva until you die right he he Rabbi Mayer didn't hear that voice from the holy of Holies that excluded Alicia only Alicia excluded you know heard that voice. So from Rabbi Mayer's point of view, he's still holding out hope. But in general, you can do chuva until you die. So he's saying to Alicia, yeah, you can, you can still do chuva. And he's hoping he'll still do chuva. He's not convinced that Alicia can't do chuva. Now at that point, Alicia wept and passed away and died. Rabbi Meir rejoiced in his heart and said, it seems seems that my master died repenting. So, you know, I think there are two ways to take the weeping. At that point, Elisha wept and passed away and died. Rabbi Meir seems to understand the weeping as tshuva. We actually know that crying is part of doing tshuva. There are different ways to do tshuva, one of which is to to cry. So he thinks that Elisha's weeping is a sign that he did Chuva, and he's happy about that. But there's another way to take it, and I think we could take it, that is weeping at the bitterness of his fate. That is, it's not meant as Chuva, because Elisha himself knows that he can't do Chuva, because he heard that voice from the Holy of Holies precluding him doing Chuva. So Elisha now has heard a drush of it, says any human being can do Chuva till the moment of his death. It's never too late. Except for me. And he's weeping at the bitterness of of that fate. And we'll see, that seems to be what's happened. That is, it seems that Rebbe Meir is wrong because it says, after they buried him, fire came down from heaven and buried and burned his grave. They came and said to Rebbe Meir, Behold, your master's grave is burning. So, what does a burning grave symbolize? These are the fires of Gehenna, or something like that. He's being punished. So it looks like, at this point, he's not getting the merit from his Torah, and he's not getting olam haba, the opposite. He has lost his chut. He has lost his merits, and he's rebelled against God. And, and since he can't repent anymore, at the end of the day, all he's got is sins on his ledger. Or those sins outweigh his... His, his Torah. But that's not the end of the story. So what happens? What did he do? What did Mayor do? He took his cloak and spread it upon it. He put his own cloak his, on Elisha Benabuya's grave. And he said, and now he's going to give a drusha based on the Book of Ruth. Okay, so the Book of Ruth, if you remember, there's the scene where Boaz spreads his cloak on Ruth. He comes upon her you know, in the, in the fields, and then he says that he's going to redeem her and do the kind of yibbum ceremony, um, because remember Ruth died and uh, Ruth's husband died, and he's the nearest kinsman. But but Boaz says there's one nearer kinsman, so I got to see if that kinsman will redeem you. If he does, that's fine. Otherwise, I'll do it. So he says to Ruth, stay the night. Then in the morning, if he will act as a redeemer, good. If the other guy will redeem you and marry you, that's good. But if he does not want to act as a redeemer for you, I will do so myself as God lives. Now, the now Mayor is going to make a drusha on this verse, as the rabbis often do, by totally decontextualizing it. So forget the context in the book of Ruth. If you just look at these words as this verse is kind of a free-floating thing, stay the night. In the morning, if he will act as a redeemer, good, but if he doesn't want to act as a redeemer for you, well, I'll do it myself. Okay, This is how Rabbi Mary is going to interpret it. Nothing to do with the Book of Ruth, but as showed often worked, totally decontextualized as a kind of free floating verse. Stay the night in this world that is similar to night. So you, Alicia bin Abuya, stay in this world that's similar to night, and then in the morning, this is the world to come that is completely mourning. So in the world to come, if he will redeem you good, this refers to the Holy One, blessed be, C who is, blessed be he who is good, as it says, he is good to all and his mercy is upon all His creatures. So the word, uh, if he will redeem you good, he's reading it as if Mr. Good will redeem you, And who is Mr. Good? That is God, because it says he is good to all. So if God will redeem you, that's good. If God will redeem you, Rabbi Meir, in the world to come, that's good. But if he does not redeem you, I will redeem you myself as God lives. (laughs) You know, I, Rabbi Meir, will redeem you. I will get you into a Lama Ba. And it was extinguished. Now, it's a remarkable drusha, and I have to say, I don't even understand exactly how it works. It's almost like Rabbi Meir is blackmailing Akadish Baruch Hu here. He's saying, you know, if you HaKadosh Baruch Hu, will redeem Elisha ben Abuya, great, go ahead and do it. If you'll get him out of, of Gehenim and take him to Olam Abba, and if you're not going to do it, I'll do it. Now, I don't know how he plans to do it, what, what he would do if God says, no, I'm not going to do it. He rebelled against me, that's it. The bodily will, will will give us a little bit of a hint how this might occur, but the Yerushalmi doesn't. But in any case, it doesn't need to because the fire is extinguished. In other words, God listens. So this, this kind of strong-arm tactics of Rebbe Mayer using this verse from the, the Book of Ruth convinces God or prevails upon God or, or, or ends up getting um getting Elisha Ben-Abuya out of the flames of Gehenna and presumably to Alam Haba. So I think part of the answer the rabbis are giving us in this story is one of the ways that the merit of Torah is actually absolute. I mean, this is the direction that it's going in, that the merits of Torah will actually kick in, that you can't completely lose the merits of Torah despite sin is because of your disciples. You know, your Torah has a kind of afterlife and because you've taught that torah it ends up getting you some credit because you're you know in this case your disciples really end up fighting for you and and you know there are there are all those traditions as you know about the the lips of a sage moves in the grave when someone quotes traditions in his name and you get a kind of immortality when their torah is quoted so part of the merit of torah part of the way it Confers a, a kind of afterlife for the mortality or a is through the Torah continuing to exist in the mouths of the disciples. You know, we have a kind of more concrete representation of this. Rabbi Meir actually goes to bat, you know, goes to fight for Alicia Ben Abuya, but ends up saving him. And then they make this point in the story even more explicit because they say, they said to Rabbi Meir, and again, you notice the beautiful literary construction three parts. They came and said to Rebbe Mayer, your master is sick. And then they came and said to Rebbe Mayer, your master's grave is burning. Then they said to Rebbe Mayer, right? So three kind of questions of Rebbe Mayer. If they say to you in that world, whom do you desire to visit? And again, that's a repetition. Does he went desiring to visit or trying to visit, desiring to visit him when he was sick, desiring to visit his grave? If they say to you, whom do you desire to visit in that world? So we get a little bit of a flash forward. We have these flashbacks. Again, This very artful use of time. Your father or your master. When you, Rabbi Meir, get to Alam Haba, who will you honor more? Will you honor your father or will you honor your master? Here's another father, parent, child reference that we've seen before. He said to them, I will first approach my master and then my father. Okay, so I'll go first to Elisha Ben Abuya. He will still be my master, even though he was a sinner, because he taught me Torah. He didn't lose that status. And they said to them, Will they listen to you? You know, I don't know who the they is, but the people in charge of Alamaba or the angels or you know, uh, the police up there, you know, will will they listen to you? Will they let you honor your your spiritual father? Elisha ben Abuya, before your biological father, because he taught you Torah, that is your spiritual father, Elisha taught you Torah. And he says, Rabbi Meir says, did we not learn they save the casings of the scroll with the scroll, the casings of the phylacteries of the tefillin with the tefillin. They save Elisha Acher for the merit of his Torah. I mean, I think this, first of all, this last line just is the, Key to the whole story. You could just sum it up that way. You know, ultimately, Torah is absolute, it does prevail. Elisha Ben Abuya will be saved despite his sin because of the merit of his Torah. But but Rabbi Meir proves this by quoting a really opposite, really appropriate Mishnah. There's a Mishnah that says they save the casings of the scroll with the scroll, the casings of the tefillin with the tefillin. And what it's talking about is if there's a fire on Shabbat and it's burning up a shoal or it's burning up a house, you're allowed to carry out sacred objects. You can carry out the Torah scrolls. You can carry out tefillin, even though normally that violates Shabbat, carrying from a private to a public domain, you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. But if you're saving um, holy writings from fire, you're allowed to do it on Shabbat. Right? That mitzvah supersedes Shabbat. And then the Mishnah says you can also take the scroll of the Torah out and the the casing of the tefillin. In other words, you don't have to, you can even violate Shabbat by taking the Torah casing and the tefillin boxes out. It's not just the scroll that you can save. You save everything altogether. So they save Elisha for the merit of his Torah. So he's got that Torah inside him. And ultimately, like the casing around him. Maybe he's got some sin around him or his body is around that. But because it contained the Torah, that ultimately he can ultimately be saved. Saved from the fire of Gehenna. So he was saved from the fire of Gehenna ultimately because of the Torah that he contained, just like the Torah scrolls are saved with the casing. So the casings are saved with the scroll and the tefillin boxes with the tefillin. It's by the way, very, very unusual to have a Mishnah quoted in a story, in an agadic story, basically a halakhic, you know, Mishnah for Agatic purposes. Again, it's one of the really neat, fascinating things in this story, makes it really distinctive. Apart from all the drushot and the verses, beautiful use of the Mishnah being drushed. You know, you don't get that that often. So here Rabbi Mayor kind of explains to everyone basically why. Alicia Ben Abuya was saved, why he adopted these tactics, why ultimately Torah should prevail. By the way, this mention of Acher here is probably a scribal error. I don't think Acher, the other, ever appears in the Yerushalmi. That's what—that's a Bavli term. It might appear in the Tosefta, again, under influence of the Bavli. But in any case, it seems to have got in the Yerushalmi here. Anyway, it's a very, very minor point.
0: Um, so the the question the mentioning of his uh fa- choosing his rabbi over his father is really just to it implies that his father didn't give him torah but his rabbi did so therefore different therefore- right
1: because you have a lot of sources where the rabbis say like if you find if they're who do you honor more your father or your right. master if you find a lost object do you return it or two lost objects do you first return the one to your master or to your father in other words, who takes precedence, and their general answer is your rabbi should take precedence because he gets you to olam haba, and your father brought you into olam hazeh. But you know, that world, the next world versus this world. But so what this part of the story is saying is that Elisha remains Rabbi Meir's master. He doesn't lose that status. And therefore, that's another reason why his Torah ultimately prevails. Uh, his Torah is Ultimately, gets the merits from it, and you can't lose it. He doesn't lose it. So that's the basic answer to our story. This is how the rabbis answer it. I mean, it's a little complicated because Alicia, you know, he did kind of require some help from Rabbi Meir from his disciples. But ultimately, the message is, you know, the, the you can't lose your scoot, You can't lose your merits for studying Torah. And then that message is rehearsed in the last part of the story, a very brief part. This is often the way rabbinic stories work. They kind of repeat themselves in different ways to emphasize things. But since it's in a narrative mode, they give you another story or another part of the story. So years later, the daughter, his daughters, Alicia Ben Abuya's daughters, went to ask for arms, alms, charity from Rebbe Yehuda Nasi. Okay, so we're talking about the next generation, the daughters of Alicia and the student of Meir. I mean, Rebbe Yehuda Nasi is not explicitly s- stated as a student of Rebbe Meir. There are a couple sources to that effect, but we do know Rebbe Yehuda Nasi's Mishnah was based on the Mishnah of Rebbe Meir. So I think it's fair to call him a student. I think that's really what's going on. That's the storyteller's idea. So... Rabbi Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Nasir, decreed and said, may no one show him mercy, may none pity his orphans. So again, quoting a verse from Tehillim, and there's a section in this um, chapter of Tehillim about the wicked man. And it goes about all the things you shouldn't do to a wicked man. You know? All these things should happen to him, and no one should show him mercy, and no one should pity his orphans. So... Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is initially saying, we can't give any charity to his daughters, because he was a wicked man. And that wickedness, his sins, continue after his death and even affect his daughters. They said to Rabbi, to Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, do not look at his deeds, look at his Torah. So they appeal to Torah, meaning, again, symbolically, they're committed to Torah. And again, they appeal to exactly what Rabbi Meir was talking about. The sins are less important than his Torah. The Torah should have merit. And his deeds are outweighed by that Torah. At that point, Rabbi wept and decreed that they'd be be supported. So he retracted and he gave charity to the daughters on the basis of their father, Elisha's merit, his Torah, Again, here we have the parents and children, right? Fathers and daughters, again, we have sons and mothers. He said to him, if this one who labored in Torah, not for the sake of heaven, see what children he raised, he who labored in Torah for its own sake, how much the more so. So Elisha's daughters, despite his labor in, in Torah, lo shem shemayim, not for the sake of heaven, despite his tainted Torah, his daughters came out good. You know, they appeal to Rabbi on the basis of his Torah. They talk about Torah. They were pious, you know. Someone who labors in Torah, how much the more so? How much the more so will he have pious children? So again, this kind of rehearses the whole message of the story. In the next generation, we have Elisha's daughters, we have mayor student. Initially, they're not supported. The sin seems to outweigh the Torah. But then Rebbe is convinced they should be supported uh, because the Torah ultimately confers merit; it outweighs the deeds. Look at his Torah, not at his uh, look at his Torah, not at his deeds, not at the sins, and therefore, ultimately, the merit does prevail. Um, so I think this just little section basically says what we saw before with Rebbe Mayer and Alicia Benabuya himself. You know in a slightly different way. <clears throat> Again, the sin versus Torah and the Torah prevails. So overall, what the Torah, what the what the story of the Urshami is telling us is when you you know Torah is 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 of, of such high status, right? Torah is so great. And of course the rabbis have other expressions of this. Tamut Torah Knegid Kulam. Talmud Torah is as great as all the other mitzvot and there's no greater mitzvah than Torah and so on. But it's so great that its merit will ultimately save you no matter what. So even if there is such a figure, even if there is someone who learns Torah and ends up sinning for whatever reason, and those reasons, it's hard to understand how that figure would actually exist. But the rabbis work and storytellers work in Figuring out a plausible construction of someone who knows Torah but sins, can't repent. He's stuck in that odd configuration of two, like oil and water, things that shouldn't go together, but they do. But if that does happen, and you do ultimately sin, lose faith, rebel, violate Shabbat, no matter what you do, in the world to come, your, your Torah will ultimately prevail. You cannot learn, lose that merit. And, and it's absolute. Yeah. Uh,
2: incredible breakdown. Yeah. Um, I just want to, a few points that I want to bring out. I just want to make sure that um, comprehending the methodology that you're placing. So um, essentially, the way to attack an Agadah I don't know if it would work for every single one, but at least for a large corpus of agadots, right? Um, I think that we tend to try to read it um, or learn it linearly. If I'm, if that's the wrong word, maybe, I don't know. No. Meaning a, a lot of times, you know, you'll go through an agadan, and each point, like, you know, you'll start to try to uh, derive a lesson or go into that point. What you're doing is you're more um creating a general theme of a, a, a premise let's call it that that premise is not obvious you have to in a sense uh extract out that premise and then every step of the story is basically you're reading how the rabbis constructed a story with literary techniques to achieve to achieve um that premise that they're looking to create via this character, and then answer it within that structure as well. So really it's one point if you, what I'm trying to say is, so if you're getting stuck in the details of the story um, independently, or trying to get something kind of um, outside of this structure, out of maybe a certain point in the story, that's kind of a waste of time. Because essentially what you're, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're reading it as one whole unit from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think I think you want to. I mean, first of all, you have to you have to see that the storyteller was telling a cohesive and coherent story, and one of the way you see that is the re- repetition and themes, repetition and language. You can see he wants clues. you to make these connections, and those the yeah, those are clues. Those are a way of of making it hang together, and then what's also important is the structure you know I divided it and it's not just me i mean people who analyze stories in this way you can see the five parts and the subunits of each part and and once you appreciate the structure exactly like you say you don't have to read the story in a purely linear way one section two section three section yeah. four section five that's normally how we would encounter History. a story and read it but you can relate different sections to different other sections. Section D is actually more related to Section B, and Section E you know, then comes back to Section D, but with the father and children, it has some motifs in common with the other ones. So you want to be able to take different sections out of their linear order and see how they relate to other sections in the story. So it's very useful to uh, make structures if you look at my books or you know, the books of other scholars of rabbinic stories. Now, this is one part of the method of reading and analyzing uh, stories. So you're right. You don't want to look at each detail and sort of get bogged down on, you know, what is exactly does the horse imagery yeah. mean and look at every other case of a horse on Shabbat, right? Within the story, you try to figure out what it's doing and how it relates to the other sections of this story.
2: Right relates to the other sections of the story. That's the key. That's that's the key point. Right. Right? So we're we're, yeah. And you're right. And it's such an important point because um, I can tell you myself, and I can tell you in general, uh, people tend to um, kind of read each part of the story and kind of just go off a tangent with them.
0: Yeah. Not really realizing. They'll 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 go like full pill pull on it. You know they'll. Yeah. Pill
2: pull or even, even a lesson per se. Like yeah. I, I, the way I understood it, it's not even so much about the lesson. It's it's about trying to get to the story to a certain place where they can address the grand question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't totally say that, you know, different parts of the story cannot be analyzed on their own terms and kind of related to other yes. stories or halakhic issues. I mean, there's a tremendous amount you could do with every single, every one of those drashot should be looked at in terms of all the other readings of that verse and uh, and similar drashot and so on. But what often happens is what you're saying is people lose sight of the story as a whole. So it shouldn't be mutually, it's not mutually exclusive, but sometimes, you know, you lose sight of the entirety of the story. So you want to look at the story also as kind of an integrated narrative unit and unity. And you know, not lose, not sort of just go astray with all this kind of purple and kind of digressions all the time. It's okay. Sometimes that'll then feed back into the overall, you know, the overall story, but it is a it is one textual unit and it is one integrated story. So you have to read the whole thing to try to understand what the storyteller is trying to tell us. And just to, to make one final point, you could see by the end, I think there's a, a relatively sympathetic portrayal of Alicia Ben Abuya in this story. He's crying yes. by the end. Rabbi Mayer is trying to save him. Maybe he even does tshuva. It's very hard to harmonize with that first story, the one, the interpretation of Dosefta, where he kills children, you know, and collaborates with persecutors. It's very hard to see Rabbi Mayer, like, going to bat with a, to bat for a person like that. In, in this story, his rebellion is against God, right? He loses faith in God because of theodicy. All his sins are benadam la You know, he's, he's he's going outside the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he's not harming anybody else. You know, so Rebbe Mayer is trying to redeem him in that sense. I, I guess it's a question you could ask is, well, what happens if he did more heinous things? What happens if he, you know, if the sinner actually did kill young students of Torah? Would that jeopardize his merit of Torah? But you Know, I, I don't know the Bavli actually does flirt with that a little bit. We'll see that when we when we get to the Bavli, but at least the Yerushami's answer in, in this story is that you know, uh, this, this rabbin Meir who did the sins that he did in this story, no matter what they were, although again, we didn't see they seem to be more on Amla Makom, never learned lost his merit for the study of Torah. Uh,
2: one last question so, yeah. in relation with Tosefta, you see the Tosefta doesn't really give you an inkling of his personality. Yeah. Uh, old, there Shami comes and we have a full-fledged personality on him. Yeah. Um uh so yeah. how do we understand so so the so, so the Tosefta is really um the Tosefta is really just focused on uh entering the Pardes and you know the the fallout of 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 uh, trying to jump too far in the, you know, mystical tree. Um, and Urshami sort of goes a whole different direction. Yeah. Not interested at in that at all. And just comes yeah. into a whole new, like, you know, designed uh, story uh, that yeah. really has no at all to the Tosefta anymore.
1: Yeah, that section of shami is just interested in interpreting the Tosefta. Gives us three interpretations. Does the best it can do. um It's very hard to make sense of because it's such a cryptic tradition. Know something bad happened and plays with different scenarios, and then it's done. And this story, we don't really know the origin. It starts in Medius race right in the middle of the whole episode. Alicia Benabouya is coming by the baby garage, and he's already become a sinner. And he's already Reverend Mayer's uh, master. You know, that's all in the background. But we don't know where this tradition comes from. Yeah, we just can't trace it back. Here it appears, Mirashalmi, but already in a very, very highly developed form. I mean, it's like I said, you could see such a sophisticated narrative, uh, which I think tells me that the the rabbis and Mirashalmi were interested in this. They were interested in this problem. They were interested in this theological conundrum. And at some point they began telling this story and it developed and it developed and it became this very highly... Sophisticated, literarily polished narrative. That's also very, very deep from a theological perspective. Amazing, professor. Thank you so much. Uh, We
0: really enjoyed this, and we look forward to the final segment, God willing, uh, which which is the story of Alicia Benabuya in the Talmud Bavli. So we hope to see you soon. Sounds good. Thank you both.
1: Thank you for your. See you then. Good
0: night. night. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Before we go, we want to thank our Patreon supporters by name. Those are the supporters that are helping make this show happen because Frankly, Bensi and I are full-time workers who don't really have so much time on our hands because we have families, we have kids, and it's just a passion project that got way bigger than we expected. So we're dedicating more time to this, and obviously our production value up until this point hasn't been great considering that we filmed this in Bensi's basement using a green screen and a crappy little microphone and not such great equipment, to be honest. I'm sure you all realize that. So we are hoping to up our quality and get better equipment. And part of that process is going to be due to you guys, the listeners and supporters. If you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Judaism, you will see all the different tiers of ways you can help us out. So first of all, we want to thank our super patron, Jordan Carmilly, our platinum patron, Craig Gordon, our gold patrons. David Abramchayev, Laser Cohen, Travis Kruger, Vasily Valkov, Silver Patrons, Ellen Fleischer, Daniel Maksumov, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Wasserman. Thank you all for supporting the show, and we hope you guys enjoy.